following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm all distracted, and I'm coming into class laughing tonight because I just uh, logged in here to see Arthur's contribution <laughs> of the theme song uh, for this class. Uh, the first line goes, let me tell y'all a story about a man named Ged. I think you can sort of see where he's headed with that. Anyway, very good. Um, <laughs> anyway... Hi, welcome to our discussion of A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, really excited. I have not taught this book uh, for seven years now, a little over seven years, and I haven't read it in the last seven years. I haven't read it since the last time I taught it, actually. And I was amazed, like reading the first couple chapters, rereading, I should say, the first couple chapters of this book. It was like reading it again for the first time. I was reading this book and I'm like, have, I have read this before, right? I'm sure I have. I've seen videos of me teaching on this book, so I'm sure I've read it before. But um, I guess I'm just sort of reaching that really rewarding part of my life where like it's been so long since I've read books and I'm getting so forgetful that like it's, it's like reading them for the first time again, which is actually kind of cool. So um, anyway... So I've been really enjoying reading Wizard of Earthsea again, and I'm looking forward to going through it with you uh, here over the next few weeks. Of course, this isn't going to be one of these... I know it now seems like ever since the Maori class, right, we've set this new standard of like expectations for what a good full experience of the Mythgard Academy uh, 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 you know, discussion should be. But it needn't actually be that long, and this is, of course, quite a short book. One thing, by the way, uh, that I want to... Um, share with you. We have a little addition uh, to the schedule uh, because uh, some of you may remember that uh, in our, uh, if you have during our previous fundraising campaign looked over our, uh, our donor reward program, uh, that uh, at a certain level of giving one of the prizes, one of the, the, the gifts that I give in, in gratitude for that is the ability to choose your own Mythgard Academy class. So we've had a request uh, from one of our donors, uh, and that is uh, to do Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis, which I thought was a great idea. Uh, so I am very happy uh, to give her the gift of a discussion of Out of the Silent Planet. And it seems to me to work really super well actually, because uh, that's also quite a short book. So especially given we spent, we just spent like 37 weeks on Maori, and then we spent 17 weeks on uh, uh, Sauron Defeated, um, and now we're going to do like six weeks on A Wizard of Earthsea, and then back to Morgoth's Ring, and I'm really eager to get to Morgoth's Ring and everything. That's, you know, I think one of the most fascinating of all of the history of Middle-earth books. But it kind of, you know... It was already seeming a little bit imbalanced. So actually doing like two short non-Tolkien books in a row uh, seemed like uh, a really good thing, actually. So that's what we're going to do. So we're going to do a, a Wizard of Earthsea. My plan is to be done with this before the, the end of the calendar year, right? So before the end of 2019, we'll finish a Wizard of Earthsea, if all goes well. 
And then uh, uh, we'll start Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis, uh, the first uh, book, of course, of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. And, of course, uh, the the other reason why I was really excited about the suggestion, or the request, rather, um, was, of course, having just done the Notion Club papers, and we've been thinking about the, you know, uh, Tolkien's time travel stuff and everything. And, of course, Out of the Silent Planet was C.S. Lewis's half of that, right, where he was doing space travel. And, of course, we talked uh, about um, out of the Silent Planet and Perelandra during the course of the Notion Club papers, like while the Notion Club was discussing it and stuff. So it's also kind of fresh on my mind and, and probably some of yours as well after some of those discussions. So um, anyway, so that's um, uh, that's the uh, uh, that's the. Uh, uh, thing here yeah oh so yeah so the donor the the person to whom you owe the pleasure of our discussion of out of the silent planet uh is jennifer pope known as tarlonio on the twitch stream uh uh on in uh, twitch world uh so uh anyway so uh many thanks to jennifer for her generous donation and very uh happy to uh this is and it's funny because this is of course actually our first ever c.s lewis discussion um C.S. Lewis has been nominated many times, of course, for the Mythgard Academy, but uh, we have never done any of them. So, uh, again, a really great opportunity. I think it's going to work out great. Uh, and so the um, that one is going to be, I guess, going to be about the same length, uh, uh, around the same length uh, as this one. So the plan then, this will push back Morgoth's ring until maybe, like, March, essentially, of... Um, uh, of 2020 to start Morgoth's ring. So that'll, that'll all, that'll all work out just fine. Um, yeah, cool. Um, excellent. Good. I said, good to see lots of enthusiasm about, uh, about this, uh, this idea. Uh, <laughs> David asks, could we lure Brenton Dickinson to join the class? You know, David, I'm not sure. Um, how strong a lure I'll have to use, actually. <laughs> but uh, it's more a question of whether I could keep him out. No, we'll see. I'll definitely invite him. That would be uh, it. Would be fun. Uh, uh, Brenton is a wonderful C.S. Lewis scholar. Uh, Brenton is literally the person I always email when I have a C.S. Lewis question. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to hear from Brenton on that too. So, all right. Um, Anyway, so that was one announcement. I got a bunch of announcements tonight. Announcement number two is uh, I, so before I left at the end of the uh, um, uh, at the end of Sound Defeated, I didn't get a chance to do our drawings. If you remember, during our fundraising campaign, we were doing we were taking uh, names. People were submitting names by email. Uh, you know, people who had made donations to Signum University, and we were going to do a drawing right with several gifts. Uh, as prizes. And the second and third prizes are uh, either a choice of uh, a ticket to uh, uh, a regional moot of your choice or an anytime audit uh, class. So, uh, you know, which means the ability to audit any one of the classes in our Signum catalog. Um, So that's uh, those are the second and third prizes, and the first place person gets that also, but they, in addition, get a special Mythgard Academy prize, uh, the grand prize, which is a unilateral nomination. So this is not the, like, you just get to, like, we, we, we throw an entire class. It means you get to choose a finalist, right? So uh, those of you who have done this before will know there are sort of two rounds of voting, right? First, the Council of the Wise votes to nominate the the slate of finalists, right? Usually four finalists uh, uh, that, that we have, and then the whole everybody votes. 
uh, about the uh, about the four uh, on, on the four finalists. So the grand prize winner is going to be able to unilaterally nominate an, a finalist, right? So it'll be a fifth finalist uh, that will be added, um, but so that uh, you know you can't single-handedly get the book that you want to discuss chosen, but you can put it into the final round unilaterally. That's the grand prize, okay? And so let me announce, and we'll email the winners as well, but uh, uh, the uh, the third prize winner is John Saltow. Uh, the third second prize winner is Jonas Carlson. And the grand prize winner is Rachel Draper. So congratulations to the three of you. I did my, uh, I, I rolled my dice uh, off off screen here before we started here tonight. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, so that'd be good. I always that's of course you know because uh, multi sided dice are always valuable throughout life. Hey Rachel, you're here. Cool. I was looking for you before and I didn't see you. Yes, congratulations, Rachel. So glad that you're here. Yes, so you are our grand prize winner, Rachel. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks, of course, to everybody who has donated during our fundraising campaign. Uh, and of course, uh, our annual fund is doing great. By the way, uh, our uh, our annual fund is at about fifty five thousand right now, um, out of the seventy thousand that we need for the for the year. So we're doing we're we're doing awesome, right? Our fiscal year goes through July thirty first, uh, so we're on a great pace to. Uh, to, 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 to get the funding that we need. We're only about $15,000 short. Uh, so we need about $15,000 more over the next, you know, what, several months, nine months or so. Uh, and, uh, and we will be where we need to be. So that is, uh, that is, uh, that is fantastic. Um, anyway, so thank you to our donors. Congratulations to the winners of our drawing. Now, and last announcements, and then we're really actually going to get started. So uh, the uh, first, I just wanted to draw your attention to a few things that are happening. Um, if you, this is of course our homepage. So if you look at our homepage and scroll down just a little bit, you'll see several things. One, uh, this is the final week of our our special. Uh, the, the discount special we're having on our folk, folkloric transformations class. This was a class taught by Dimitra Femi, uh, looking at uh, folklore traditions and how they've been transformed in modern retellings, and especially looking at things like vampires and stuff like that. It's a very it's a very Halloween themed uh, course, and of course, if you know Dimitra Femi at all, you know that. Uh, she is just a, a wonderful scholar and a brilliant teacher, and we've been very uh, blessed to have her teaching with us several times. Um, so, uh, and this is one of her courses. So, well, well worth it. And uh, still, our sale is going on here uh, for just the next couple days. Um, these, of course, are our spring courses. Spring semester starts in January, so you can. Uh, and look, our Lewis and Tolkien class. Uh, so uh, you can uh, uh, you can check out some of these, the classical myths and legends, uh, looking at the Greco-Roman world. We spent a lot of time with the Germanic world and and uh, uh, adding the the myths and legends of the of the Greco-Roman world to that. That's a new class uh, this uh, coming spring, which is going to be taught live. Uh, so you can do uh, you can do a premiere of it, meaning uh, you can like show up and watch the lectures lectures live and participate in it. Um, uh, so, of course, it's a very different experience from our, from our Anytime audits. And upcoming events. So this one is special. Speaking of Brenton Dickinson and C.S. Lewis, uh, he is doing his uh, uh, Mythology of Love and Sex uh, class, which is a study of... Uh, Love and C.S. Lewis. Um, yeah, it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a purely internal joke. Um, 
Uh, never mind. I won't even give the purely internal joke. But anyway, the point is, it's a really great class, and it's going on. And he's done a. This is the second time that he's doing basically just sort of like an open public class session because he's having some uh, he's having some guest speakers in, including Diana Glyer, uh, the author of uh, the company they keep and Bandersnatch. Um, uh, she's going to be joining him, uh, and they're going to be having a discussion on the topic of friendship uh, in Narnia. So you can read more about this here. Uh, this is a free event. Uh, just click on the link there uh, to join in a session, uh, just like so many of you are here tonight on GoToWebinar with us. And of course, Baymoot, the final regional moot of 2019 is coming. That is coming on Saturday, November 23rd. Uh, the registration is open for that, so if you can make it, it's going to be in Berkeley, California. Uh, this is our... This is our uh, from my East Coaster uh, perspective, I tend to call it, I tend to think of this as the Northern California moot. Uh, but let me call it more accurately the slightly more northerly than the other California regional moot um, uh, there in the Bay Area. We were in Oakland last year. We're going to be in. We're going to be, as I said, in Berkeley this year. Uh, really looking forward to getting out. Baymoot was so much fun last year, uh, and I know there are several people here uh, that I got to meet last year, and I'm certainly hoping to see again and hoping to meet many others as well. So uh, please do register for Baymoot, and there's still if you uh, if you might want to participate uh, and uh, uh, you know present or lead a discussion or something. We have uh, there's still a call for presentations and proposals open uh, there as well. So. Um, Bay Moon is going to be a lot of fun. I've been spending some time over the last um, uh, couple days sort of going through the calendar uh, for um, 2020. And it's uh, 2020 is looking pretty exciting, really, uh, regional moot-wise. Um, we're looking now at 10 regional moots in the 2020 calendar year, um, which is going to be pretty cool. Uh, Tex Moot and L.A. Moot, both in February, and then Sunshine Moot back in Florida um, uh, in March. And then, of course, April is going to be Magnolia Moot, which we re rescheduled from the end of October to April 17th. So that'll be then. So we've got those four in the spring. Uh, and then uh, the fall starts... Uh, 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 very interestingly, we're going to have, first of all, a brand new moot, which we've never done before. And our third, well, yes, our third ever um, uh, moot outside of America. We're finally doing maple moot. Canada is getting its moot at last. It's going to be in Toronto. Uh, and it's going to be in the, in the beginning of August. I think August 8th is the date that we're looking at. Um, so the beginning of August, we're looking at, uh, at, uh, at maple moot. And then... Uh, in September, we're going to be uh, I, I, there's a there's a good chance that there will be three moots outside of America in a row, actually, in the fall. Uh, Maple moot in Canada, in Toronto, uh, and then dragon moot in Wales in early September. And then we're, we're still trying to get this one together, but we're trying to get together Nippon moot in Japan uh, near the end of uh, September. And then, of course, October, we'll, we'll do we'll probably do New England moot again then. Uh, and we're looking at all. Also doing, uh, of course, Middle Moot uh, back in Kansas City again, uh, and then hopefully Bay Moot again uh, after that. So it's a uh, a, um, uh, a big year uh, this um, uh, this this coming uh, 
this coming this coming year for and of course plus in the middle of it, Myth Moot at the end of June, uh, which of course is going to be uh, is going to be just awesome. We actually should have registration for Myth Moot open uh, before too long. We're 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 getting pretty close to that. We should have the registration. We should be able to get the registration open earlier than last year. We've had some good uh, uh, good things happening behind the scenes there. We had some some struggles last year with uh, our discussions with the venue, but this has been uh, moving along. Um, Catherine, I'm not 100% sure of the uh, uh, venue for Nippon Moot yet. I think Tokyo, but I'm not completely sure. Um, that's still still sort of in the works, but we're really hoping to get it together. It's, uh, um, uh, yeah, going to be a lot of fun. Oh, and uh, so, uh, oh yes, and Vroen Flieger is definitely coming to Myth Moot this year. She is, uh, uh, she, we, we've, we've, uh, Decided it was just like it has been too long since we have had Verwin Flieger at Mythmoot. We just love having Verwin Flieger at Mythmoot. Uh, so we've invited her again, uh, and she's definitely confirmed that she's coming. So that's going to be really wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, the theme for Mythmoot. Oh, let me see. Let me see if I can remember. It's longish. Uh, let's see. Sharon, can you help me with the the wording of the theme? I'm, I'm, I don't want to mess it up. Um, it's defying and defining the darkness yes which is of course a perfect transition into our discussion for tonight uh defying and defining the darkness and perhaps uh yeah it's uh, it's from a quote attributed to anne frank from the diary uh, of anne frank um so um anyway uh it's a it's a a, a really rich and complex theme this year um and speaking of both defining and defying the darkness, uh, we come to a Wizard of Earthsea. Um, so let us begin our discussion. Um, one of the things that I find always really, really interesting whenever beginning a new work of fantasy uh, is kind of seeing where we are, right? Looking for the way that sort of the world is unfolded, right? Uh, and in particular, you know, you may remember, of course, uh, Tolkien's words in On Fairy Stories when he talks about, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, one in being a sub-creator, one can be the lover of nature and not her slave, right? So there are usually, when you're, you know, beginning a new work of fantasies, a certain generally large percentage of, you know, natural laws in things which work the same as the world that we're familiar with, right? Um, but, of course, then there are some which are not the same. And trying to identify that, I'm always really fascinated at the way in which... Um, I'm always... I'm, I'm often really fascinated at the way in which um, uh, authors do this, right? When we when we are first being exposed to a new world, um, how it is they communicate this to us, and and Le Guin is such a master. Even you know, in A Wizard of Earthsea, which is one of her earliest works, she was already masterly uh, in how she unfolds this. Uh, let's see, Tomas, this this isn't our very first non-Tolkien modern fantasy book, um, but we haven't done very many. You know, we haven't had this opportunity to do what I'm talking about doing right now very often. Um, we had um, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, right? 
Princess Bride, technically, I think. Uh, not quite the same, but uh, kind of. Uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell would definitely be uh, the one that I would think of. Dune, yeah, you can kind of argue. You know, like, is Dune uh, science fiction or fantasy is, of course, always a, an interesting debate uh, that people can get into. Um, but um, you are certainly correct, um, Tomas, that we've not done this very often, right? Um, a lot of the non-Tolkien works that we've done uh, have been either... Uh, old books like uh, Maori or Boethius, or they have been uh, um, uh, science fiction works, right? Which is cool. Um, anyway, so let us look at how she... So I'm going to... My, my passages are going to be sort of particularly dense in the beginning, right? In the first few pages, uh, going through and seeing how we learn and how we are exposed to what's going on, what we learn not only about the character, but about the world. So we begin with the epigram. Only in silence the word, only in dark the light, only in dying life. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. The creation of Ea. Okay, so uh, what's the first thing that you notice about these verses? Well, I know the first thing that you notice about these verses, right? The first thing that you notice about these verses is the sound scheme, obviously, right? Um, clearly. So, uh, how does how, how do these lines work? What's the what's the pattern? What's the pattern of these of these of these verses? We have to make sure we we know what we're hearing, and get the get the rhythm, right? Get the shape of the poem here, if we're going to shape words into poetry, we'd better pay attention to that, even before we pay attention to the, the plot, the meaning, right? Because I, I think that the sound of the poem is, re to me, it's, it really is the first thing to focus on. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been sort of feeling that increasingly, uh, you know, as I've gotten older and the more poetry I read, is that the I'm not saying that the shape of the poem, the sound shape of the poem sort of determines or predestines it, but it's such a fundamental choice um, uh, which drives the poem. Um, okay, good. Kate, that's a really interesting um, that's a really interesting uh, uh, observation. Only sticks out, right? The repeated word at the beginning of the first three lines uh, sticks out, and it certainly does very much for more than one reason, right? Um, and she says it sticks out so much that she doesn't even, you know, she barely even notices uh, the the rhyme, right? Light and flight. I mean, it does have alternate even uh, uh, even line rhyming, right? Lines two and four, but you know, rhyme, light and flight. Sure, but I agree with you, Kate. That does not seem to me the most prominent. Um, uh, the most prominent function only does stand out more. Um, do you hear the other reason why it stands out? Not just because of the repetition, but listen to the rhythm. Only in silence the word, only in dark the light, only in dying life. You hear it? 
the rhythm is very regular through all three of those lines, right? Um, and the regularity that we can see in every single one, leave out the only, right? If you skip the only, you can hear it even more clearly, right? No, exactly. There's a bump in the line. The only is a bump in the line every single time. Absolutely. In silence, the word. In dark, the light. In dying, life, right? All of them are iambic, right? In silence, the word. A little extra syllable there, but it works fine. In dark, the light. In dying, life, right? But only, of course, is not like that. Only is not uh, unstressed, stressed. Only with the stress comes in the first syllable, right? So all three of those lines start with something that sounds trochaic. Only, only, only. Right. And then it transitions immediately after the word only. It transla transitions to I am's only in silence. The word only in dark, the night, the light only in dying life. So absolutely the only sticks out. Um, it is um, uh, Noam, as you say, it is a it is a it is a it is a bump in the line. It is the irregularity. But again, it doesn't. It's it's not a. It's not. It's perfectly regular, right? Um, it's it's uh, it's a variation within the line, but it's a perfectly regular variation, whose result is to stress the only, right? Now, I know that, like, the word is repeated three times, so like we'd have noticed it anyway, even without the sound. But you see how much when you look at the sound or you listen rather, to the sound patterns, you see how those guide you. Uh, to that, it guides you to see how you can see the entire, the entire shape, the entire structure of those first three lines is communicated to us by the sound, by the rhythm, right? That emphasis on only, 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 and then the other half of those lines, right? Which is not, of course, an even half, but, um, and the way that that pattern repeats itself, right? Showing the clear parallel between those things, between the relationship between silence and word, dark and light, and dying and death in life, right? Dying in life. Um, uh, so that 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 pattern of balance, right, um, is created by the sound there. But notice also the well, it's almost a kind of irony, right? That is. The second half of those lines are all about the balancing of two things. In silence, the word. In dark, the light. In dying, life. Right? But the first half of the line is only, only, only. Right? Like pointing to singularity. Right? To particularity. Um, and that's interesting. Um, yeah. Um, Yes, I agree, Noam. There are many contrasts between those first three lines and the next two lines. So let's let's um, uh, let's go down and look at that. And yeah, David, I agree. So yeah, David Atley says uh, he doesn't read this as balance, but as contrast. Yes, potentially, right? The interesting thing, of course, is what's the other repeated word? There's a second repeated word, right? And that's in, right? In silence, the word. In dark, the light in dying life, right? So we don't have, as you say, David, we don't have pure balance, right? We don't have silence over here 
and Word over here, Dark over here, and Light over here, right? We don't have that. We have instead one thing in another, right? The Word is in silence. The Light is in dark. The Life is in dying. And it's only there, right? That's the significance of only, right? The Word is only in silence. The light is only in dark. The life is only in dying. But you'll notice that's exactly not the sequence of the words, right? By placing the only in at the beginning, what is emphasized is not word, light, life. Those come last in the lines, right? The emphasis is placed on the only in, only in right? It's the pattern that is being emphasized. That these things, the word, the light, and the life, can only be found in silence, dark, and dying. Um, and then we get uh, the last two lines. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Oh, hang on a second. So, this is going to be something that I'm going to be really interested to look at more carefully over the course of reading the book. Um, as I'm assuming that the epigram, that like when we look back at this epigram at the end of the book, it's going to make more sense than it does at the beginning, right? We'll have more context for understanding what this means exactly. Um, but I do think, so Christopher, I hear people talk about this, and there are several other people who have uh, made similar comments to say you could almost substitute the word from for in, like only from silence the word, right? As if the two things are necessary for each other. Um, and indeed, even I was implying that when I was talking about balance before. Uh, but it's interesting because I am not at all sure that that is... Um, well, again, without context, I'm not sure that that's inescapable here. Um, you can, Arthur, as you suggest, read this not as balance, uh, or, and as David was saying also, but as contrast. Um, yes, it's not that silence and the word balance each other, but that the word is spoken into the silence, right? Um and that's the only place it can be found is in the silence. Uh, and the light can only be found in the dark. That doesn't mean that the two of them are equal, right? Um, it couldn't speak to the... Perhaps the, it's the emphasis is on the difference between them. Possibly, right? Um, uh, and Kate also, yeah, I, I, it is possible. Uh, Kate Neville asks, is, you, know, you know, doesn't the in imply a journey. It could well imply a journey. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's very, um, I think that that's very possible. Uh, again, certainly a possible reading of it. Well, let's get to those last two lines then. Um, Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. First, don't think about it. Listen to it first. 
Listen to the whole thing again. Only in silence the word, only in dark the light, only in dying life. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. There are four syllables, total syllables, in that first, in that fourth line. Bright the hawk's flight. Of them, three of them are stressed, right? Bright the hawk's flight. You can't unstress any of those words. Bright the hawk's flight. I mean, bright hawk in flight. You can't unstress any of them. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Um, and in that last line, we fall back into the modified iambic pattern that we could hear at the end of the earlier lines on the empty sky. The empty sky uh, has the same sound pattern as in dark the light, in dying life, the empty sky, right? So the sound of the very last line, the fifth line, brings us back to the first three lines, but without the only, right? Uh, we don't get, um, you know, bright the hawk's flight only in the empty sky, <laughs> right? That's that's not what happens exactly. But again, we do still recall very clearly um, the uh, um, the rhythm there at the end. But bright the hawk's flight sounds very weird. And Kimber, I agree. Uh, the hawk changes the pattern. That line certainly changes the pattern. And Stephen, that's an excellent point that, of course, bright is rather an odd adjective to apply to flight. Right? The hawk's flight is bright, is what that line says, right? Not in, those, not in that order, but that's what it says, right? The hawk's flight is uh, bright on the empty sky. Um, though, uh, come to think of it, notice something else about this poem? Uh, notice the other thing that this poem is missing completely. <laughs> Verbs. Verbs of any kind. Yeah, exactly. Noam is saying the verb to be, which is true. Any verb. Only in silence the word. Only in dark the light. Only in dying life. Dying, of course, is a, is a noun there. It's not a verb. It's a verbal, right? Um, but it's not. It's a, it's, it's a present participle. It's not a, it's not a verb. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Right? Um, lots of prepositional phrases, right? And this, of course, is why, you know, some people were saying at the beginning, uh, you know, is this really a poem or is it just like a proverb? Well, it's, it's both. I mean, it's clearly... Uh, the I mean, you know, uh, walks and talks like a poem to me. But is it an a a, a a a you know, an aphorism? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Maybe even an apothem, uh, with a silent g. Um, uh, even though I don't know that I would know an apothem uh, when I ran into it, but I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, that's one of those words that I learned from a horse and his boy and have never encountered anywhere else in my life. Uh, but um, uh, choice maxim and apothems, uh, as Kellerman poetry is full of. Um, but anyway, 
Um, okay. Yeah, Kate says that's why it reminds her of a haiku. No verb. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, good. Now, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six of you just at this in the same minute posted a comment on the the title, the given to the creation of Ea, uh, down beneath that, um, which is indeed very worth discussing. But we're not done with those last two lines yet. Um, Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Um, we have no verbs, but we have another preposition, right? We have replaced in with on, which is interesting. Um, Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Um, and yes, an internal rhyme, Noam, that also seems important, especially since the internal rhyme gives us a third rhyme for the only rhyme that happens in this poem, right? Um, only in dark the light bright the hawk's flight, right? So that, on the one hand, rhythmically, um, even syntactically, because, of course, we we're breaking the pattern, the, the repeating pattern from the first three lines. Um, that fourth line is a is a departure. Right. It feels jarring. It's 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 a, it's it's going off in a different direction. And the colon. Right. The punctuation shows us the first three lines all separate, you know, are separated from each other by commas. Right. Clearly delineated. Right. We're not they're not in jammed, um, but they are. um uh, but they're not totally separated, right? The colon, with the colon, we get a much more um, forceful piece of punctuation, right? Separating those. But it's not a semicolon, it's not a period, it's a colon, right? As if to say that those last two lines are in some sense what? Uh, a restatement of what was said before? Um, a summation of some kind of what those first three lines do. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. No, a, a summary. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, good. Kimber points out that those last two lines also re reverse the pattern, right? First you have the negative thing and then the positive thing, silence, word, dark light, dying life. And now we have the bright flight and then the empty sky, right? So we end with the negative thing there, right? And I believe that Kimber is using, and I'm certainly using the words positive and negative in, in the purely logical, not emotionally weighted sense, right? Um, silence is negative in the sense that it is the absence of sound, right? Um, uh, the sky, the empty sky is negative in the sense that it, it is, it is empty. Whereas the bright flight is a positive present thing. Um, yeah. Um, so James Stevens, I do get the general sense that what comes before the colon is sort of supposed to frame what comes after it. Or again, perhaps to say the same thing in a different way, what comes after the colon would seem to be um, perhaps something like uh, an illustration or a manifestation um, or an exemplar of the principles that were being outlined before the colon. 
Um, yeah, and no, absolutely, I agree uh, that the... Uh, the <laughs> Noam, I just had two simultaneous realizations. One, I was like, man, Noam is all on top of this poem, right? He is all over this. And then, I, and then my second thought was, dude, Noam, isn't it like 5 a.m. for you or something like that? You're up super early. Holy cow. Uh, I, I mean, if I were out of bed at that hour, I don't think I would be anything like as coherent as you obviously are. Um, <laughs> so, okay, it's 6 a.m. and you stayed late rather than getting up early. Okay, I too would be mo more coherent if I were still up at 6 a.m. than if I had woken up at 6 a.m., no question. Um, anyway, very glad that you got... Noam is in, is in Israel, so uh, I knew that time zone-wise... Uh, this, something was something was unusual in uh, in in uh, Noam being with us here tonight. So that's great. Um, yes, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Let's see. Yeah. So anyway, but as Noam was saying, the strength of the final statement being the only time that we get the I mean, those last two lines are in jammed. Right? There's no punctuation after line four. Bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky is almost like one longer line at the end. It's not one longer line, but it's almost like it, right? Um, the way that those two things flow together. So it's a it's a much stronger statement. Again, as if we have, like, I don't know what, theory and practice, right? Uh, you know, principle and application. is is That that seems to be kind of the, the way that the poem kind of bends around that colon, right? Um, okay, so why is the hawk's flight bright in what sense is it bright so i mean there are like two questions to ask right um like in what in what sense is it bright and how does that bright what, what does that brightness have to do with the empty sky um i yeah I'm not sure. I mean, my sort of final conclusions about the poem, like what the poem is really saying about what this aphorism really means, is um, uh, I think we kind of have to wait until we get a little bit more context. I don't think we can draw fur. We don't have nearly enough data to draw firm conclusions about the wider ramifications and implications of this poem. Um, but having thought through the shape of it and what it's doing and how it's doing it, we will certainly be in a much better position to apply the knowledge that we gain through the rest of the book to this. Um, let me, uh, well, let me come back and talk a little bit about um, the, yeah, okay, hang on a second. Some of you are making observations about the hawk, so let me get to that. Um, uh Stephen, that was my first thought, too, that the empty sky, the brightness of the hawk's flight being connected with the empty sky kind of makes you think like, well, like you can see it better because like if the sky were cloudy, you would probably not really see the hawk, would you? Right. I guess. Um, but. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but I'm wondering, too, about the sun, right? Because we've got brightness, right? Uh, brightness in the empty sky. Is... We can understand this in a couple different ways, 
right? We can understand bright in a purely metaphorical way. Somebody was talking about this, like um, uh, suggesting like, um, you know, it's flight is bright in the sense of being like full of life and energy and that kind of thing. It could be metaphorical in that way. Um, uh, you know, that you have like the serenity of the empty sky and like the vivacious activity of the flight of the hawk across the sky um, to, again, to sort of be that contrast uh, as between light and dark and dying in life. Uh, maybe it could be that it could be bright in the sense that if the sky is empty, that is to say of clouds, um, well, the sun would presumably still be there, right? So it would be bright in the sense that if you're looking up at the hawk, you're also looking at the sun, and so it's also bright. Um, it's also possible that if the sky is really empty, well, does that include, uh, you know, Devorah, as you were asking, um, does that include the sun? Right? I mean, it, the sky is empty. The sky is empty, right? So, um, is this under? Is this saying? Um, uh, um, is this instead referring to? Is the hawk a metaphor for the sun, in some sense, right? Um, does it include the hawk? James, that's a perfectly good question, right? Bright the hawk's flight on the sky, entirely empty of everything except hawks, obviously, or at least one hawk, right? That doesn't flow quite so well, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Noam, I do agree. We have the abstract in the first three lines and the concrete in the last two lines, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm less... in. I'm less... Uh, convinced by like going totally metaphorical with the hawk and the sky, that seems like a, just a concrete visual image, right? Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. David is uh, David Atlee is pointing out that um, uh, the hawk does show us some of these things, right? Um, that is does illustrate some of those concepts from the beginning, in particular, as he points out, in dying life, right? Uh, that is to say, the hawk, why is the hawk flying, right? The hawk flies because the hawk is a predator and it is searching for prey that through the death of its prey, uh, you know, the field mouse or whatever, um, it will live, right? Only in dying life. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Karita, I don't know what color the hawk is. Um, bright. It's hard for me to imagine like a really dark hawk, right? Like a, like a, you know, a dark brown hawk because it's called bright, but it's flight is bright. It's not the hawk that's bright. I think probably. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. But let's talk about creation. The creation of Ea. Um, I know, yeah, James, I'm sure you're not the, uh, James Lieback, I'm sure you're not the only one looking at this bird hovering above my head and, and laughing in the context of this uh, uh, <laughs> of this discussion. <laughs> right. Uh, 
Yes, exactly. Um, so, the creation of Ea. I obviously can't think of can can't I can't not think of Tolkien when I read the phrase the creation of Ea. Um, I don't know the story there. That is whether Le Guin was deliberately alluding to Ea. No, she couldn't have done because Ea is not doesn't ever appear in the Lord of the Rings. So she wouldn't know. So it would have to be a coincidence. Yeah, exactly, Kate. That's just what I was... This, of course, the Silmarillion isn't published until 77, and this was published nine years earlier. And I'm, I don't think there is any reference to Ea prior to the publication of the Silmarillion, which means pure coincidence. If you can believe that, pure coincidence, um, uh, that she would call what the world, I guess, if that's what Ea is exactly, we don't know for sure. Um, but all of these things are being connected by the little title that we're given here um, to... Uh, to creation, right? Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> it says maybe Ea is the hawk. <laughs> Can't rule it out. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, David is... Uh, Noam and uh, David Erbach were both thinking about potential common sources that uh, Le Guin and Tolkien might have had. Um, uh, and uh, David is saying all that he can find is, is uh, you know, a Sumerian deity who might have been called that. Uh, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, we know that uh, some Sumerian and Babylonian stuff, uh, or at least I should say more accurately, uh, John Garth has argued very persuasively that Tolkien, in his early mythological stuff, was strongly influenced uh, by Babylonian and Sumerian things. So it is conceivable uh, that they both come from a similar source in that way. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. Um, oh, and no, what a wonderful point. Um, creation implies action, right? Now, it is a noun, right? The word creation, of course, is a noun. Um, but I certainly agree that the fact that this is sort of describing the act of creation or discussing the act of creation or contextualizing the act of creation or whatever exactly it's doing with the act of creation um, is... I mean, what The act of creation is like... That's the verb, right? I mean, there's no, nowhere do verbs get more verby than when you're talking about creation, right? Uh, when you are creating, create is like the most active verb ever, right? Uh, so um, it is really interesting, right, that in describing creation, we get no verbs. Or maybe in there's a sense, Noam, in which, uh, you know, 
the great verb, right? Uh, the great action of creation is sort of what is being described without verbs, right? Because uh, how can you describe the act of creation with other verbs? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. Uh, and we do get, you're right, Stephen, that we do get indirect, um, indirect actions in a sense, right? Um, words like flight, which are, which are nouns describing actions, uh, dying, right? Which is, as, is, as, as I said, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, present participle or is it a gerund? Yeah, sorry. It's a gerund. Uh, but anyway, it's a noun, right? Um, but it's, um, yeah, so we, we do, we do get some of those things, but, uh, but again, no verbs, uh, themselves. Um, yeah. And James Stevens, we're not given any very, I mean, we're not given any indication here on this page as to whether or not this is the whole poem. Or is this an excerpt, right? Um, we're not really sure exactly what that is. Okay, well, as I said, all this is probably going to make a lot more sense later on. But um, it will not surprise you to hear I meant to be a good deal further along than the first paragraph by now. All right, I'm not even to the first paragraph. I have an idea. Let's talk about the first paragraph. The island of Gaunt, a single mountain that lifts its peak a mile above the storm-wracked Northeast Sea is a land famous for wizards. Let's pause. First, this is a good first sentence. The island of Gaunt, a single mountain that lifts its peak a mile above the storm-wracked Northeast Sea, is a land famous for wizards. Okay, what do we learn? List for me the things that we learn from the first sentence of this book. The very first thing, the very first phrase of the book is about the island of Gaunt, right? So the island context uh, of the book is the first thing we get, right? Which is, so we have this sense of isolation. Not only that we're talking about an island, but that the island is being characterized as a single mountain that lifts its peak a mile up, right? So we have this visual image um, of a uh, uh, not only like an island but it's, it's it's not an island in the sense that like you know Ireland is an island it's an island in the sense of like one of the smaller Hawaiian islands right just a like a mountaintop that sticks up above the water right um, yeah yeah um What else? It's famous for wizards. It's famous for wizards, right? Oh, good. Zach uh, points out that it's being in the Northeast Sea suggests isolation in that it isn't the center of the world. Yeah. But it does also suggest, Zachary, at the same time, that it is in relation to other things, right? If this is the Northeast Sea, then this is only one, at the very most, like one quadrant of the entire ocean, right? Um so there are probably other islands, 
Right? I mean, it'd be kind of weird if it were like the only island, if it were truly isolated, right? And there's no other islands around and, and you still decide to name that sea the Northeast Sea for some reason. Like, it's got to be, if it's the Northeast Sea, it's got to be Northeast of something else, right? Uh, so, uh, so, yeah. So we get um, this sense of, of separation and of isolation, but of that there are other things, right? Other islands that were being, that, that, that are being related to. Um, and it's a land famous for wizards. We know there are wizards in this world. And of course, as um, one of you was pointing out, of course, we could arguably have guessed that from the title as well. Yeah, Stephen, as you were saying. Um, but um, uh, but this definitely tells us something that the title did not, right? I mean, sure, the title might have primed us to come to this uh, work expecting wizardry of some kind or other, right? Um, but the plurality of wizards, right? that this island is a land famous for wizards um, also emphasizes that or, or reinforces the concept of the not complete isolation of this island, right? Obviously, the island of Gaunt has a reputation among presumably other people of other islands, right? Um, uh, but its reputation is specifically grounded upon the wizards that it produces. And we don't know, Karita whether it's famous in a good way or not, right? Um, uh, it is famous for wizards, but what exactly does that mean? Um, uh, what is a wizard anyway, right? It does suggest, Arthur, that wizards are not necessarily rare in this world. That doesn't necessarily mean that, like, most people are wizards or something. But yes, I mean, a wizard of Earthsea, the title, I mean, of the book... Um, already implies that there's multiple wizards just by the use of the indefinite. I mean, it's not the wizard of Earthsea as if there's only one, right? Uh, it is like a wizard of, you know, among the wizards of Earthsea is this one of whom this book is, is going to talk, right? Um, uh, so we get that implied already in the title and made much more explicit here uh, in this first thing. But Noam, that's another really excellent point. It's not just that wizardry isn't extremely rare. It's also that it isn't extremely secret, right? I mean, it's, like, well-known. It's famous. I would have gone to famous for producing wizards. Um, so, yeah, Stephen was just uh, uh, making that same point. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, a question that it raises is, Why? That is, why does the island of Gaunt, in particular, uh, produce more than the average number of wizards? And could, Boomful on Twitch is absolutely right. Technically, at the end of this first sentence, we don't really know even if the fame is justified, right? It's famous for wizards. That doesn't prove that lots and lots of wizards, or good ones, are actually produced there. Uh, probably, but, you know. I, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, good. No, I agree. The weather uh, seems important enough to be mentioned, right? The fact that it's the island of Gaunt is, in, is uh, lifting its peak above the storm-wracked Northeast Sea, but you know, the fact that the Northeast Sea is storm-wracked also is worthy of mention in the first sentence, right? 
I know. By this time, you're like, holy cow, we're never going to finish. We're like, what? How long did he say it was going to take to do this book as we're doing like one sentence at a time? It's the first sentence. It's a big deal. Let's go on. From the towns in its high valleys and the ports on its dark, narrow bays, many a Gauntishman has gone forth to serve the lords of the archipelago in their cities as wizard or mage, or, looking for adventure, to wander working magic from isle to isle of all Earthsea. Of these, some say the greatest, and surely the greatest voyager, was the man called Sparrowhawk, who in his day became both dragonlord and archmage. His life is told of in the deed of Ged and in many songs, but this is a tale of the time before his fame, before the songs were made. Okay. Um, (laughs) Nancy's laughing at me. Nancy Fosberg just arrived an hour late to class, and here we are on the first paragraph. We totally have talked about more than this. It's it's not as bad as it looks. We spent almost an hour on the epigram poem. That's the problem. Um, Anyway, okay. Uh, So what what do we learn? Spoilers is one very prominent thing that we learn, right? Um, Yeah, Ian, exactly. It tells us what happens after the story that we're about to read, right? We learn that this story that is like a prequel. Um, We are told almost the end, right? We're something like the end of the career of our protagonist, Right. We know that the man called Sparrowhawk, who is our protagonist, is going to become both Dragonlord and Archmage. Now, we don't know what that means, but it sounds impressive. Dragonlord, right? I mean, dang. An Archmage. Okay. So famous for wizards. And now we've got an Archmage. And of course, we've got the wizards and mages earlier on. So um, from the land famous for wizards, this one dude is going to emerge and he is going to become the greatest mage, right? I mean, that's what Archmage certainly supp- uh, uh, implies. Um, and um, I love the phrase, the deed of Ged, right? His life is told in the deed of Ged and in many songs. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Noam, an excellent question for which we don't really know yet. Is a wizard, a wizard and mage, is that the same thing? Gone to serve in the Lord, serve the lords of the archipelago in their cities as wizard or mage. That could just be a synonym. Two different ways of saying the same thing. Or those could be two very different job descriptions, for all we know. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, great question. And this is, that, this is, to me, the most important thing that I, you know, I talked about what I'm always thinking about at the beginning of reading a new fantasy book or, you know, the, a first fantasy book. Um, and especially, of course, I'm always keenly interested to see with magic, you know, how magic is being represented and trying to resist making assumptions about it, right? Um Yes, likely Abad, I agree with you. Uh, Archmage certainly does suggest that there's a structural hierarchy, right? Archmage with a capital A, unlike Dragonlord, which doesn't have a capital D, 
Um, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. I don't think that's a mistake. Um, it suggests that Dragon Lord is like a noun, right? Uh, whereas Archmage is a title, like something conferred upon you by people, like some kind of council or whatever. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nancy, I agree. The whole context of that last sentence suggests that this is historical. In other words, that this is being told long after the days of Sparrowhawk, right? Um, that he's dead when the story is being told. Um, this is a tale of the time before his fame, before the songs were made. Um, this is the story before the stories. This is the story before the songs. You've heard the songs, of which I think the deed of Ged is one. Right, the deed of Ged is is a song, right? His his life is told of in the deed of Ged and in many songs, right? So I take the deed of Ged to be a song title, right? A song of lore, maybe, or uh, you know, a, a, certainly a narrative song, I would imagine, but I don't really know. Um, and so this is a tale from before that time. Um, James Liebeck, I agree. The description of wizards that we've heard so far makes it almost sound like a trade. Yes, it does sound almost like a trade, um, like you would take up wizardry. Okay, good. James is uh, uh, checking little d dragon lord is correct. Okay, so dragon lord is not then necessarily a title, right? A uh, like conferred upon you, like archmage seems to be, right? Um, he became dragon lord. I don't know what that means, but um, but it's not. Like, somebody didn't just name him Dragon Lord, right? Um, it's something that he did, right? Um, it could be a book title. Um, it could be a, a book title, James. Uh, Leibach, uh, that is, Deed of Ged could be a book title. Uh, I'm thinking just the end in many songs. I mean, that could be a contrast. Like, in, like, Deed of Ged, you know, the bestseller and also many songs, you know. Um, but I tend to think that it's it's an example of like the most famous. Like you've, I mean, you've, I, mean, I don't know if you've heard all of the songs about you know Sparrowhawk, that you know Dragonlord and Archmage, but you've certainly heard the Deed of Ged, right? And there are also like lots of others which you should totally hear if you haven't. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, let's see, Noam, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, Noam is asking about the, what, what's the difference between island and isle. The word island is used in the first sentence, and then isle later on. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I mean, there isn't. Normally, I'm just trying to see if there's a reason to think there's a difference in the way it's being used here, and I don't see one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and good, Nancy, that's another really good point. Um, uh, Gaunt seems to be a place that wizards go forth from, not some place they hang out, right? Uh, it's better to be from Gaunt than to remain in it, apparently. Um, 
But yeah, the fact that wizards go... So it's not like Gaunt is like the place which is just going to be like chock full of wizards if you go there. It's where they it's where they come from. Um, yeah. Okay. I have an idea. Let's also talk about the a, a subsequent paragraph. A sister of his dead mother lived in the village. She had... This is not the second paragraph, by the way. I did skip a couple. She had done what was needful for him as a baby, but she had business of her own, and once he could look after himself at all, she paid no more heed to him. But one day, when the boy was seven years old, untaught and, un and knowing nothing of the arts and powers that are in the world, he heard his aunt crying out words to a goat, which had jumped up onto the thatch of a hut and would not come down. But it came jumping when she cried a certain rhyme to it. Next day, herding the long-haired goats on the meadows of High Fall, Dooney shouted to them the words he had heard, not knowing their use, or meaning, or what kind of words they were. Noth hirth malkman, hyork han merthan. He yelled the rhyme aloud, and the goats came to him. They came very quickly, all of them together, not making any sound. They looked at him out of the dark slot in their yellow eyes. I love that image. They looked at him out of the dark slot in their yellow eyes. Um, yes, goats have, like, you know, vertical pupils like cats, uh, but you normally don't imagine things like looking at you out of, like, just the pupils, right? Uh, the way in which the alienness of the eyes of the goats, right, as you are looking, you know, all of their eyes are fixed on you and you are looking back at them, the way that that phrasing emphasizes like his creepy feeling about how like he's staring into the eyes of all these goats and they are so different from him. I, it, it's um, really uh, striking, I think. Um, and yes, I agree. It's really creepy. That last sentence makes the goats really creepy. Um, oh, goats have horizontally slitted eyes. See, Karita, I didn't even know that. Um, here I'm ignorant about goats. Uh, I'm not wholly ignorant about farm animals, but I don't know much about goats. Okay, they have horizontally slitted eyes. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, but I agree. You don't, even, <laughs> you don't even have to know anything about goats to find that last sentence uh, really creepy. Um, okay, so... What else do we notice? Uh, phrases that really jumped out at me. The, the, the phrase, apart from the creepy goat eye sentence, uh, the, sen the phrase that really jumped out at me most here, because this is, of course, the description. This is the first time we ever hear or see um, uh, hear or see magic being worked, right? Um, notice even before it happens, we get that phrase... Um, what is the phrase? Now I've lost the phrase. Uh, right. Uh, he was. Yes. Um, no. Darn it. Yeah, there we go. Knowing nothing of the arts and powers that are in the world. That's the one. Thank you, Arthur. Yes. Um, the arts and powers that are in the world. Okay. That's interesting. Right. Two things. Arts and powers. Arts, that definitely means a practice that people do, right? 
This is talking about the craft of people. So that's one thing of which he's ignorant. He is also ignorant of powers that are in the world, right? So there are what powers that can be tapped into, maybe communicated with, maybe uh, maneuvered or manipulated, um, channeled in some way, um, knowing nothing of the arts and powers that are in the world is a very general statement, right? It tells us very little in particular about what magic is and how it works, right? Um, but it suggests its very lack of specificity um, uh, specifies, you know, that it is, there is not like a particular source or a unique technique, right? Um, there is, uh, there are many arts and powers in the world. Uh, Dooney is ignorant of all of them, right? Um, but, uh, but there are many arts and powers in the world. And the first thing that we see seems to be an art, I think, right? His aunt cries out words to a goat. So the goat obeys when she calls out these words, a certain rhyme. He shouts to them the words he had heard, not knowing their use or meaning or what kind of words they were. So he doesn't, what, doesn't know what it's a spell? He doesn't know what kind of spell it is? Now, Noam, that's another wonderful question we don't know the answer to. Um, which is, do we suppose every woman in the village knows some magic? No idea. It seems pretty... I mean, okay, this is our third character, right? We've had Dooney, his mom, and then his mom died, and now we have his aunt, right? So we, we had three characters, and now we're down to two characters, right? Um, and the only other, you know, non child protagonist character that we know is like randomly using a spell to summon a goat down from the uh, roof of the house. So um, it seems pretty normal, pretty mainstream, right? Um, or at least kind of generally gives us that impression. Um, I guess we've kind of had his dad, but he hasn't really, I mean, it was alluded to the fact that like he in fact had a father uh, but we haven't really met the father yet. Um, yeah, good. Kimber, that's a really good... Um, that's a, And yes, uh, Katriana, she doesn't seem to be trying to hide what she's doing. Absolutely not. Um, again, not, not secret. As again, we saw what seemed to be implied about wizards from the beginning. Kimber points out that it does seem that the words that she's saying are not in the language that the people of Gaunt speak. Right. Otherwise, he would have recognized the words. Right. Um, so he re he memorizes the words and he repeats the words, but he doesn't understand them. Um, so the words that he's speaking are special in that sense. Likely about which is asking the same question. I think we can assume the words are not in a Gauntish language. I don't think he knows. Um, he, he, he We're told he doesn't know their meaning. Right. So. He's just repeating syllables that he doesn't understand at all here. So clearly the rhyme, and we can hear the rhyme though, right? Like that works in translation, and without translation rather, right? Noth hirth malkman, hjolk 
Hjölkhan Merthan. Um, the rhyme works, right? We can hear that. He could hear that it was a rhyme. He repeats it, obviously better than I did. Um, and it works. The goats came to him. They came very quickly, all of them together, not making a sound. Um, okay, so... We are to understand that this is these words. So are these words in a language of magic? Notice he's, we're told he doesn't know what kind of words there are. So there are different kinds of words, apparently. Um, and he doesn't know what kind of words these are. Um, now, let's see. Oh, sorry, who was asking about arts and powers again? Um, oh, likely a bot up in the Twitch. Why I wasn't finding it up in the Twitch chat. Um, yes, uh, see, but I'm not sure, likely a bot, whether this suggests it's it, there's like, is this, is, is this an instance of art or power? I'd vote art uh, because now it's one could make an argument that it would be power. I would vote art um, because although he does not understand the art, he has imitated the art. Right. Um, the art would seem to be in saying these particular words in this particular way. Right. Uttering this rhyme in this particular you know, these particular words in this particular combination, which he has done unknowingly, not knowing what it means, not knowing um, what it does. Well, having a general sense of it summoning goats. Um, he does repeat it with intention, Catriona. Exactly. So he's uh, sort of like someone who is, you know, has heard a song and is singing a song. Is that person singing? Is there, are they performing vocal art? Yeah, they absolutely, they are. It's not his own art, right? He's not making up the song. Um, but uh, but is it power? Again, uh, I mean, there's power in it, obviously. That's not the point. But um, if I'm understanding about the, the arts and powers being in the world, um, the contrast there to me seems to be about the relationship to humans, right? Um, well, I don't know, maybe that's not quite right either. Well, we'll just have to see. Um, because one of the questions is if any idiot repeated these words, will goats come? Right? I don't mean in the primary world. I feel comparatively safe from goats, especially since I messed it up, which means probably, uh, something worse would happen. But, um, but anyway, um, if any gauntish person just uttered these lines, would the same thing happen? Or is there likely about, as I think you're suggesting, power in him that makes it happen, right? Um, well, let's see. She took him into her hut where she lived alone. She let no child enter there, usually, and the children feared the place. It was low and dusky, windowless, fragrant with herbs that hung drying from the cross-pole of the roof, mint and molly and rime, yarrow and rushwash and, par and paramol, kingsfoil, clovenfoot, tansy and bay. Yeah, 
King's foil, I know, right? There his aunt sat cross-legged by the fire pit, and look and looking sidelong at the boy through the tangles of her black hair, she asked him what he had said to the goats, and if he knew what the rhyme was. When she found that he knew nothing, and yet had spellbound the goats to come to him and follow him, then she saw that he must have in him the makings of power. As her sister's son, he had been nothing to her, but now she looked at him with a new eye. She praised him, and told him she might teach him rhymes he would like better, such as the word that makes a snail look out of its shell, or the name that calls a falcon down from the sky. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we get so many things which are said and not explained, right, uh, here. Um, uh, Karita says, why, why are the kids scared of her place, right? Uh, there's no explanation there. And of course, as Arthur points out, her looking through the tangles of her black hair makes her sound kind of witchy, right? I mean, the image that it of her sitting there on the floor with her tangled black hair hanging down and in this place that kids are scared to come because they may or may not get eaten or something. Who knows? Um, I, I mean, it's starting to sound a little bit fairy tale witch-like, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and yes, exactly. Karita, we see her complete dismissiveness of the blood relation, right? Um, like he was her nephew, whatever she, she could, she can care less about him being her nephew. Um, but now she looked at him with a new eye. Right. She seems to be thinking in a C.S. Lewis mode, a dreadfully practical sort of person, um, which is often are, you know, um, sorry, quoting the magician's nephew there. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, Stephen, there's I, th there's no indication of of mistreatment, neglect. Right. But not of mistreatment. Um uh, it seems slightly conspicuous neglect in the sense that um, she seems to have been as her as like his mom's sister um, left in kind of a t caretaker position of him. I mean, she she was the one who tended him when he was a baby. And then as soon as he was more or less independent, by which it sounds like she means ambulatory right, and weaned, uh, she basically just whatever started ignoring him. So um, the neglect, therefore, sounds kind of significant. Right. But I don't know how sketchy she's supposed to, apart from the fact that she looks rather like a witch um, and seems to scare the local children. Um, and Lynn, that is a wonderful question. Uh, would it have been any different if it was her sister's daughter? Uh, Lynn is pointing at it. It doesn't say as her sister's child, he had been nothing to her. It says as her sister's son, he had been nothing to her. Would she, yes, would she have uh, been a little bit more active uh, in her guardianship or, uh, you know, looking after uh, a niece than a nephew? It's possible. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly a good question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes. And Arvan, I see those points. We're going to be coming to some of those, uh, some of those things a little bit later on. 
hopefully even tonight. And she offers him... Now, notice the way that power was used. Um, we learn an important thing at the end of that paragraph, and not just about her. Um, and that is, when she found that he knew nothing and yet had spellbound the goats. So, he not even having any idea what he does, it worked for him, Right. Therefore, she sees he must have in him, have in him the makings of power. Um, by which it sounds like this means magical talent of some kind. So I guess magic is not simply an art in the sense of something that anybody can learn. Right? Like if you do the right things, if you perform the right actions and utter the right words in the right order, stuff happens. Right. It doesn't seem to be that kind of magic or entirely uh, or entirely that kind of magic. Right. Um, It's it seems to be something that is in him that gives him what she perceives as the makings of power. Right. Um, Yeah. David Atlee says more precisely, it implies that anyone could learn to do this, but few could do it without knowing how it works. There does seem to be uh, some kind of some kind of natural talent. Right. uh, Or knack that he has. Uh, He's clearly a promising student. Right. If he can just do this naturally. Right. Um, Yeah. 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 Yes, and James, the uh, calling down the falcon from the sky is our first connection back to the the, the bright flight of the hawk, right? Agreed. Um, yeah, Zachary, it does seem possible that what is happening here is that it's something like, you know, Zachary saying, could it be like, like sports, right? Like everybody can learn to, fl- to play football, but few have the talent to play it professionally. And there are some people who just like take to it right away and can immediately do things that it takes other people, you know, a long, long time to try to train themselves to learn. It's possible. I, I don't think we can rule out that, right? That um, it's not that what he's doing is only possible to those who have this talent, but rather he's just without ever even knowing what he's doing, he's just such a natural at it that it suggests he can become really good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I teach me that name. He said, being clear over the fright, being clear over the fright the goats had given him and puffed up with her praise of his cleverness. The witch said to him, you will not ever tell that word to the other children. If I teach it to you. Notice she's not asking. Will you ever tell that? She is telling him. This is a fact. You will not ever tell that word to the other children if I teach it to you. I promise. She smiled at his ready ignorance. Well and good. But I will bind your promise. Your tongue will be stilled until I choose to unbind it. And even then, though you can speak, you will not be able to speak the word I teach you where another person can hear it. We must keep the secrets of our craft. Good, said the boy, for he had no wish to tell the secret to his playmates, liking to know and do what they knew not and could not. Okay, so lots of questionable motives here. We see her desire for secrecy and the fact that her desire for secrecy is going to manifest itself right away in a binding of him. 
right? She is going to bind him to, she's going to assert some kind of power over him in some way. Now notice, we now have two works of magic being referred to, right? Um, and both of them seem to be, well, I guess if you count the snail and the falcon, it's technically four, but um, they seem to be of a similar kind, just oriented towards different species, the goat one and the, and the snail one and the falcon one, right? Um, but anyway, all of the magical spells that uh, we have heard about or seen seem to be about causing other things to obey your will. Right? Um, yeah, as, as Devorah says, and now we don't just suspect that she is a witch, right? Yes. Uh, uh, which seems to be confirmed. Right, James is saying the same thing. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and we... So... So there's kind of three things that I want to that I want to look at at the same time here, right? One is what we learn about magic, and so far, 100% of the magic that we've learned has been about commanding, ordering, binding, getting other things to do or not do things according to your will, right? That's so far what magic means, as far as we can see. Second is what we learn about her, and it seems to be pretty sketchy. Your tongue will be stilled until I choose to unbind it. Um, and third, of course, what we learn about him, and that is his pride, right? Um, how readily he is puffed up with her praise of his cleverness. Um, how quickly he gets over the fright the goats had given him, right? The fright that he had when the goats came around him and he couldn't get rid of them, and they're just, like, he summoned, he bound them to him, right? And now they won't leave, and everywhere he goes, they're, like, right immediately pressed around him, the very first time he does a magic spell, he is terrified by it, right? He comes to see, if he has eyes to see this and the humility to learn this lesson, that, gosh, though this magical spell, though this rhyme enables me to effect my will upon other things, there are sometimes unintended consequences. And sometimes that can, you know, follow you around in an unpleasant way that might not be good, right? He gets over it super fast, which is probably not a good thing in the end, right? Um, especially since it's his vanity, right? Uh, his being puffed up with her praise uh, that uh, seems to do the trick, right? Of helping him to put that aside. Um, uh, to me, the most ominous sentence in uh, about her, right, is she smiled at his ready ignorance, right? Uh, you know, she seems to be just like, uh, you know, there's a sucker born every minute seems to be her attitude. She is clearly uh, taking, um, uh, uh, she, is, she is clearly taking advantage of him, right? Um, uh, that seems to be fairly explicit. Um, and... Uh, yeah, Kate, I, I think we don't have absolute proof on that point, but I think we have very good reason to suspect at this point, as Devorah was suggesting and James, uh, that, that uh, you know, his aunt weighs at least approximately the same as a duck. Um, uh, and then, of course, we get finally his wish to tell the, his his lack of wish to tell the secret to his playmates, right? His liking to know and do what they knew not and could not, his desire for distinction, his desire for 
a, a kind of supremacy. We don't know what he's going to use magic to do. Like, we don't know if he's going to be, you know, trying to dominate his playmates, if he's going to try to attain power over them um, uh, in any sense. Um, but uh, he certainly... Um, uh, his pride is certainly certainly an issue. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, likely about you're certainly right that on the it's easy to be too hard on Sparrowhawk here, um, as likely about was reminding us in the Twitch chat there. He's been, and uh, uh, Arvin Eleron was uh, uh, talking about this too, he's been isolated, right? For all we know, he's some kind of outcast, uh, you know, born without a mother, obviously neglected by his aunt. We don't know exactly much about his relationship with his dad, but it doesn't seem to be very active. He does have playmates, which I guess is good. He lives in a small village, but to what extent is he, you know, so... To say, you know, liking to know and do what they knew not and could not might not just be arrogance, right? But uh, someone who has never had a positive distinction being hungry for it in a very natural way, right? So I I, I agree we should be careful not to condemn him too quickly. Um, But at the same time, uh, good, Karita, and you're right, people laugh at him uh, with what happens with the goats, right? Yeah, yeah. so, again, I don't think that we should be too hard, but nevertheless, it is easy to see, at least potentially, some of the paths that this desire might point him down, right? That uh, that liking to know and do what others knew not and could not, um, it might be very understandable, given his circumstances, but it is also clearly a perilous kind of liking. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur is noticing that he sounds a little Smeagol-like at this point, which is a little bit true. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. So she does hear her binding on him. Speak, she said, to test the spell. The boy could not speak, but he laughed. Then his aunt was a little afraid of his strength, for this was as strong a spell as she knew how to weave. She had tried not only to gain control of his speech in silence, but to bind him at the same time to her service in the craft of sorcery. Yet even as the spell bound him, he had laughed. She said nothing. She threw clear water on the fire till the smoke cleared away and gave the boy water to drink, and when the air was clear and he could speak again, she taught him the true name of the falcon, to which the falcon must come. This was Dooney's first step on the way he was to follow all his life, the way of Majory, the way that led him at last to hunt a shadow over land and sea to the lightless coasts of Death's kingdom. But in those first steps along the way, it seemed a broad, bright road. So, hey, now we don't only have the falcon, which is kind of like uh, the hawk. It's not the same, I know. Um, But we also have a broad, bright road, right? Okay, so we're 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 recalling the epigram all over the place. Um, Nancy, I don't know what sort of service she had in mind either. It does sound like a kind of slavery. I mean, uh, that that binding seems to be pretty. Uh, um, 
uh, that binding seems to be malicious. Um, bind him to her service in the craft of sorcery. Whether he's going to become her, I don't think he's going to become her thrall exactly, right? Like her, her. But like, does she want him to be her henchman? Yeah, she seems to to want that, right? Um, that his servery, sorcery, will servery, his sorcery. That's kind of a fun word, actually. His sorcery. <laughs> It's, sorry, I'm going to totally use that word now. I'm going to practice servery. Uh, yes, yes, I just completed my act of servery uh, uh, when I when I did the dishes before class. Um, but, but anyway, um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, Arthur, we do get the Sorcerer's Apprentice thing, right? But this is more than Sorcerer's Apprentice, because the Sorcerer's Apprentice may one day become a sorcerer on his own, right? Um but uh, uh, but yeah, the way that he is going to remain bound to her so that his sorcery is what subservient to her seems to be what she and this is why she was laughing at his ignorance or smiling at his ignorance before. Right. Because um, he was willing to just agree to go through something which if he knew what he was doing, presumably he would never agree to. Right. Um yeah, but he laughs, and the laugh scares her, and she sees the laughter as a sign of his strength, that his response to the strongest binding that she could, that she knew how to leave, right? No. Weave. Weave. The strongest binding she knew how to weave, the strongest spell she knew how to weave— it's not that it hasn't worked. I mean, it seems to work. Like, it probably worked. But he's not supposed to laugh. He's supposed to not be able to do anything. Um, he doesn't speak. But he laughs. And the double side of that is, to me, really fascinating. Right? Double side with, on, on the one hand, it's almost like, you know, laughter at her. Right? He is so much stronger than she is that her attempt uh, to bind him to her service is laughter inducing. Right. But at the same time, it also seems a very positive sign. Um, this she his aunt is the um, the only sorcerer that we've met so far, of course, one of the only other characters that we've met. Um, as we pointed out before, but she seems kind of sketchy, right? Uh, and, but he, the fact that he is, the broad, bright road is, I think, what we can see in the laughter, right? He's full of joy. Is there pride there? Is there desire for power? Yeah, clearly. We saw, we can see both of those things. But there's also just, Joy, right? Um, laughter, um, and so I again I, I think it has both. Um, um, yeah, yeah. I I th I think it has both um, uh, elements. Yeah, and majory versus wizardry. Yeah, Arthur. I still don't. I don't understand enough to know the difference. Um, 
Uh, but majory is a really interesting, the way of majory is a really interesting word, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James, so if I said art, not craft before, I think I misspoke. I was using art and craft, or at least I was intending to use art and craft as something like synonyms. What I was wanting to keep contrasted with art was power, right? Being ignorant of the, you know, knowing nothing of the arts and powers that are in the world. Um, still thinking of that dichotomy, if it is a dichotomy. Um, but, um, uh, but yes, in the craft of sorcery, okay, this, it's definitely sounds like art. That's what, as I said before, so far I think it's art that we're looking at. I don't think that he's encountered a power. Exactly. Um, yeah. David, uh, Erbach says, you know, he can't speak, but he's not afraid. Uh, he seems thrilled that her spell worked because it means he can learn it. Right. Yeah. Very likely. Um, and Nancy, as Nancy says, he still doesn't know anything. Right. So even just sort of seeing magic work seems to delight him. I think, uh, uh, very, very possibly. Um, good. And Bruce is emphasizing again, the command, uh, she taught him the true name of the Falcon to which the Falcon must come, right? Um, you can command the Falcon knowing the true name of something gives you power over it. That seems to be one of the clearest insights we've been given yet into how magic works, right? And it implies that was what was involved also in that rhyme, that the rhyme also involved the true name of the goats as well, which is why they are all staring there looking at him, except with their creepy goat eyes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Kate says, I thought he was delighted to be encountering magic so directly. I think very likely. I think very likely. Um, I do, again, I do think that he, um, uh, there may be, does he have some sense yet of the, if not rivalry, desire for exploitation by her, right? Of the fact that she is against him in some sense here. Um, I think it's possible that he does. Um, yeah. Now, Stephen, what an excellent point. Animals apparently have a single shared true name, but humans have individual true names. Yes. I don't think this is not like that falcon's name is this, right? So it will come, right, when you call its name. That's not, it seems to be like falcons in general do have the same name. All the goats came when he called, right? Um I mean, not all the goats everywhere. All the goats in earshot came, right? Um, so, yes, but humans do seem to be individual there. So, again, that's um, uh, that does seem to tell us something again about how this uh, how this how this works. Um, yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's um, uh, let's keep let's keep going. Yeah, Arthur, I'm thinking about that passage too, but we'll come back to that. A later passage. When he found that the wild falcons stooped down to him from the wind when he summoned them by name, 
lightning with a thunder of wings on his sorry lighting with a thunder of wings on his wrist like the hunting birds of a prince then he hungered to know more such names and came to his aunt begging to learn the name of the sparrowhawk and the osprey and the eagle to earn the words of power he did all the witch asked of him and learned of her all she taught though not all of it was pleasant to do or know there is a saying on gaunt weak as woman's magic and there is another saying wicked as woman's magic now the witch of ten alders was no black sorceress nor did she ever meddle with the high arts or traffic with old powers but being an ignorant woman among ignorant folk she often used her crafts to foolish and dubious ends she knew nothing of the balance and the pattern which the true wizard knows and serves and which keep him from using his spells unless real need demands she had a spell for every circumstance, and was forever weaving charms. Much of her lore was mere rubbish and humbug, nor did she know the true spells from the false. She knew many curses, and was better at causing sickness, perhaps, than at curing it. Like any village witch, she could brew up a love potion, but there were other uglier brews that she made to serve men's jealousy and hate. Such practices, however, she kept from her young prentice, and as far as she was able, she taught him honest craft." Whoa, we learned so much in this paragraph. Holy cow. Um, okay. <laughs> Curita says, I, I love a little sexism with my magic. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's interesting. <laughs> Arthur says we learned that Gaunt needs feminism. Yeah, probably. Probably. Okay. So let's look at more of the things that we know. <laughs> more of the things that we learn, other than uh, that, the, yes, there's a certain need for uh, uh, a feminist revolution on Gaunt, apparently. Um, true wizardry is about balance and pattern. Bruce, I would, I would point out first, I think that that sentence... Um, she knew nothing of the balance and the pattern which the true wizard knows and serves. That, I think, is the first uh, information we've gotten that, the f anything, the first anything that we've gotten that suggests the difference between wizardry and anything else, right? Wizard and mage sounded like two different things or possibly two different callings or, or jobs, uh, before, right? Um, but, uh, but it 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 certainly um uh this is the first time that we're getting a queer indicator right of uh what the word wizard means um and this of course teaches us something else we were already we were noticing of course from our first sentence that the island of gaunt is famous for its wizards and then the first person that we meet is, uh, you know, this aunt who is, uh, you know, doing these charms and knows how to summon goats and stuff. And so it would be very natural for us to say, oh, so she's one of these wizards for which Gaunt is famous? Answer, no, she is not one of these wizards for which Gaunt is famous. Um, she is only a witch. And she is ignorant. She knows nothing of the balance and the pattern which the true wizard knows and serves. So... Tr wizards have 
a more profound knowledge of bigger things. I don't know what the balance capital B and the pattern capital P mean exactly. I don't know what those things are. Um, I also know nothing of them. Um, but the true wizard is defined by his, not only his knowledge of them, but his service of them. He is serving the balance and the pattern. The true wizard is right. Um, and which keep him from using his spells unless real need demands, right? So the discretion, like the choices, also define a wizard. A true wizard doesn't just do magic all the time, right? She, by contrast, is forever weaving charms, right? Um, she uses magic for every little thing. True wizards don't do that, we're told. We don't know why. Um, well, no, we do know why. We know why because they know and serve the balance and the pattern, presumably, right? Whatever those things are exactly. Um, there's some kind of higher order that they're in touch with. And by being in touch with it and serving it, um, there, they see if this doesn't seem too hasty a conclusion, uh, they seem to be using their power, their magic, um, to further the ends of or in the service to uh, these, this larger, bigger picture thing, right? Um, good. James Lebeck is pointing out how her better being better at causing disease than curing it seems to contrast with balance, right? She is clearly not balanced, Um yeah, that seems to me perfectly, perfectly fair. Um, yeah, and good, Devorah. I was, of course, noticing that as we went through, too. The arts and powers again, right? Um, the Witch of Ten Alders, that's their village, right, was no black sorceress, nor did she ever meddle with the high arts or traffic with old powers. High arts, not capitalized. Old powers are capitalized. So old powers, which sounds kind of Lovecraftian, but I'm trying not to think of Lovecraft. Um, old powers are out there in the world, right? So you can. Tr there are powers, which are old in some sense, um, beings. That makes it sound like they are independent beings with which one can traffic, right? Um one can get in touch with old powers, which do sound like people or gods, Bruce. Absolutely. Um, notice that the two verbs are interesting. Traffic with old powers, meddle with the high arts. She didn't ever meddle with the high arts. So her arts are low arts, then? She doesn't meddle with high arts? In what sense are they high? What are the high arts? And in what sense are they high? We don't know. Um, but her arts are apparently low arts, weak as woman's magic. Um, but she doesn't traffic with old powers, and I think that's good because this is, we're being told that right after we're being told that she is no black sorceress, which apparently is a thing, but she isn't one. Um, notice the thing, as Noam was pointing out, about village witch, right? Notice we have, like any village witch, she could brew up a love potion, right? So that's apparently normal. Um, like, that's like a category. 
uh, of people who can use charms and no true names and things like that. So there are like every village has its witch, maybe. Right. Or it's it's like a uh, I don't know, a kind of a tear. Right. Um, uh, she seems to be the only witch in their village. Uh, the witch of ten elders, she is called. Right. Who happens to be his aunt. Um, is this um, is this a coincidence, by the way? Um, yeah, Bruce, I agree. It is a little wise to not meddle in the affairs of wizards. I think she's onto something there. Um, uh, and but, David, I do agree. The use the word metal seems to suggest that the high arts uh, might be dangerous. And the use of the word traffic seems to suggest that. I mean, you don't use traffic as a verb with anything friendly. Right. I mean, that's that's just. If you're trafficking in something, you are probably engaged in a sketchy arrangement, right? That's certainly uh, and probably something destructive and possibly self-destructive. So, yeah, that's not good. Um, but she doesn't do that. So she's she's not a black sorcerer. So that's OK. Um, uh, what was I saying? Village witches. Oh, yeah. Um, is power genetic? That is are they of this? I mean, they're of the same blood. We know this, right? Uh, he is, she is his mother's sister. Um, is this why? I mean, does that, is that, is magical power inborn in people? Do we know that? I don't think we know that, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And David Erbach, I agree, which does seem to be a kind of occupation. Um, she does charge for her services. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe that, yeah, maybe that is why there, uh, tends to be one witch per village, right? Uh, and some, uh, ruthless competition there. Um, and likely about, I agree, Gaunt being famous for wizards does kind of suggest genetics, right? That the bloodlines, of the people of Gaunt, right, tends to yield wizards more frequently. But now, of course, after this paragraph, I want to come back to that first sentence and say, hey, okay, it's not just um, for its magic, right? Uh, it's not for its witches. It's not for its mages that Gaunt is famous. It's for its wizards. And now that we know that wizards, that true wizards know and serve the balance and the pattern... Um, that seems to mean something more. Um, the implication, and again, this might be a hasty conclusion, but the implication seems to me that wizard is the top of the magical food chain, right? Um, that the wizards are the ones who know most, who understand most, uh, and who act, therefore, because they know more, um, because they both understand and serve the balance in the pattern, they act with more wisdom and discretion than than somebody like her, she, who has very little of either wisdom or discretion, right, in what she does. Though she does have the discretion not to teach all the sketchy brews and stuff that she knows to uh, to Dooney, right? Um, she seems to have some shame about some of the things that she does because she doesn't, or maybe it's maybe it's jealousy, right? That is, maybe she's jealously protecting uh, her like darkest and, and most uh, 
powerful but sketchy arts because she doesn't want him to know those, right? Um, it seems possible. But, um, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, Devorah, exactly. Devorah was just asking, do I think she taught him on his craft so as not to create her own rival? That's kind of what it sounds like to me. Not, I think, that she's like, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this other stuff, so I want to do right by the boy so I won't teach to him. Uh, that seems to be out of keeping with her whole attitude towards him, right? She ignored him completely until he seemed to be someone whom she thought she could exploit, right? So therefore... Uh, trying to shield him from the dark things of the world seems to be pretty far from her priority list, right? So um, I think that uh, it seems more likely that she is wanting to protect her most valuable trade secrets. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, she might also fear his power, Kate, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, Zachary was, was saying that too. He is more powerful than she, and she can already tell from the laughter thing, right? So yeah, as Zachary says, she could be afraid of what Dooney might do uh, if he knew the sketchy stuff, right? Um, he could use it against her and more powerfully than she could or could, you know, protect himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Well... All right, so that was a fairly small percentage of chapters one and two, and we're not off to a sterling start. But in my defense, we are not going to have a whole lot of poetry. <laughs> we're just going to slow us down to that extent in the future. So I think I think it'll be okay. Um, all right, but I'm going to let you guys go here. No point keeping us up all night. We still have a couple months to talk about this. Uh, so we will come back. We're going to keep reading, uh, and we will uh, we will push on ahead. I've built in some catch-up points uh, later on uh, in the book, so uh, we should be able to, to uh, do fine there. Uh, yeah, Bruce says, I got here late. How long did we spend on those uh, five lines of verse? Under an hour. I think we spent under an hour on the five lines of verse, uh, Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Thanks everybody. Uh, this was a really fun discussion and I look forward to continuing it next week. So, uh, thanks now. Bye. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.